Due to complications from Jennifer and I both working from home, we will be airing the scheduled Fiber Shed episode with Rebecca Burgess next week. Right now, an episode from 2018 of Cultivating Place. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Following up on last week's episode with Jerry Gettle of Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds, as well as revisiting our conversation with the Organic Seed Alliance and Kaylin Redwood of Redwood Seeds, today we're joined by another passionate and accomplished plantswoman and seed advocate, Ira Wallace. Ira serves on the board of the Organic Seed Alliance, on the Virginia Association for Biological Farming, and the Open Source Seed Initiative. She's an active member of the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and the Acorn Community Organic Farm, where she is a founding resident. She is also a founding organizer of the upcoming Heritage Harvest Festival in Charlottesville, Virginia at Monticello. Ira is the author of the Timber Press Guide to Gardening in the Southeast. Ira has also just turned 70, and she took this to be an invitation to cut back a bit on straight field trial work and create a new trial garden about helping gardeners as we age, complete with innovations for doing so, which, she says, is really fun. The trial garden is on the grounds of the Acorn Community Farm, a 70-acre organic farm, which is home to both Ira and the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Because it's a seed farm, the individual gardens on the entire farm are smaller and spaced strategically far enough from one another so as to not have accidental cross-pollination. The seed garden near where she lives on the farm is about four acres, but she tends an area that's about a quarter of an acre with the help of friends. She still looks at varieties they're thinking of offering. She gets to visit seed growers in her region and look at the quality of their seed. And she gets to do a lot of her gardening work running around on a scooter. She is busy writing for the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange catalog, for their website, and for other publications and books. But she also speaks to seed savers everywhere about the work, including hands-on techniques. Ira's grandmother taught her to be a gardener, and as a young person on their large double lot in Tampa, Florida, she thought there was way too much emphasis on weeding. There, they gardened year-round, although in the heart of Tampa's summer, things sort of come to something of a standstill, she says. She clearly remembers harvesting black-eyed peas, okra, and sweet potatoes, and in those long, hot summer dormancies, akin to snow in winter for northerners, she remembers a six-week period of rest in which they could only harvest okra. Ira joins us today from the studios of WVTF Public Radio in Charlottesville, Virginia. What moved you to Virginia and to becoming a gardener as part of your life work? Well, it was a long process, and it involved several countries (laughs) before I ended up in Virginia. But my grandmother uh, passed away the year I went to college. This was in the days of desegregation, so I went to a virtually all-white college, and I wanted to fit in, you know? 
So I hooked up with the organic kids, and we got a school garden that we could grow a few veggies in. Those were some pretty pitiful veggies the first year, but they got better. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And I signed up for a plant taxonomy class just as an excuse to walk around and look at plants for credit. And so that was sort of the beginning. But I didn't actually think people could make a living Mm. with this. I thought of it as a hobby. So I took all these classes and I, I, I've i been a volunteer kind of person from, you know, the way I grew up. We were with the church and with voter registration and all this kind of stuff. So uh, gardening, volunteering became my um, new thing. And so I did that. And after college, my husband and I thought we wanted to homestead. And we started a cooperative, small cooperative community in North Carolina and were a part of uh, helping to start the now famous Carborough Farmers Market. Mm. But I still actually worked uh, in early childhood education for a living. After about five years, that People wanted to go back to school, <laughs> so we yeah. stopped that particular project, and I moved to Canada. But on the way there, I spent a year in Israel on a kibbutz. And on my way home, I spent a summer in the largest organic farm in Scandinavia. So I guess all of those times I was picking up experience in mm-hmm. gardening and seeing people actually make a living yeah. at this and so about what year did you settle in Virginia? In, in 1984. So I've been here for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and have you always been at the Acorn community since you moved to Virginia? Because it is also a communal cooperative living environment, if I'm correct. That is correct. I, I didn't actually move here to Acorn because it hadn't been started mm. at that time. I moved to Twin Oaks Community, a sister community about five miles away, who helped uh, us form uh, Acorn Community Farm uh, in 1993. And we still work together with them. As a matter of fact, on the 10th and 11th of September, We're going to do an organic on-farm plant breeding workshop led by, of course, Organic Seed Alliance folks and breeders from Cornell and from Oregon State. It is going to be so exciting to have all these people come to our little farm in Virginia. That is really exciting. And describe for listeners the kind of mission and setup of the Acorn community and if Southern Exposure Seed Exchange grew out of the community or or the relationship between the two, because I think it's really interesting and it really does kind of reflect back on your experiences both on the kibbutz in Israel and in Scandinavia, seeing visions of kind of what you would hope to build and that you now build, have built and work and live in. Well, I, I guess the community came first. Uh, we were living, I was living, and several other people who later became members of Acorn Community at Twin Oaks Community. And Twin Oaks had come to its capacity for accepting new members, and we wanted to make that option to live this more sustainable 
life and grow our own foods and raise children close to nature and all that and share economically. So we went through a process about having Twin Oaks help us with buying a new farm nearby and starting this new project. We thought we were going to have a CSA as our main agricultural industry, but a funny thing happened on the way to the CSA. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Jeff McCormick, who started uh, Southern Exposure Seed Exchange uh, on his family kitchen table in Charlottesville, wrote the funniest ad. And we were like, it was winter of our, maybe a few years after we started. And it said something like, interesting work, working with heirloom seeds, not so good pay, but you'll learn a lot. And it was like, we thought, who could be this honest? Let's call this guy. (laughs) So a few of us worked part-time that winter with Jeff. And the next summer, we grew seed for him. Uh, Several of us had already been involved in the Seed Savers Exchange, just growing seeds for our own amusement. And a year later, Jeff was having some health issues and felt like, and it was coming up, you know, to Y2K, and seed sales were booming, and he just thought, this is too much for me. And he offered one of our members, because he didn't exactly realize how we were organized, the opportunity to buy the company. And we said, well, we might do that if we can do it together as a group. Mm -hmm. And he considered this and agreed to do that and be our mentor, which really helped Mm -hmm. uh, a lot. And it was kind of perfect for us because we were already interested in ecological agriculture and preserving genetic diversity. And we thought, can you make a living doing this? Well, it took us a while to have that happen. (laughs) Three years, I think, of learning and building it and supporting it with our recycled tin crafts. (laughs) But it was great. And so the farm is 70 acres. It's outside of Charlottesville, Describe a little bit just the the makeup of the farm land. Is there woodland? Are there waterways? Well, yeah. We have a long, skinny piece of land. It's a quarter of a mile long, but only maybe two blocks wide. It's very long and skinny. And it goes from a country road to on the back, a river, and there's a little stream that goes through us and a pond that's on our neighbor's property mostly, but also on ours. And on the other side, there's another little pond. And near the river, there's a a small marshy areas where we have a heron rookery. And so I, I would say there's 30 acres that are open and the rest are wooded of one sort and another. And how many people are involved in the community? How, how many people were involved when it got started, and how many people are involved as community members now? Uh, when we started, we were 10 uh, adults and no children, although we soon had three. <laughs> uh, and now we have 30 members, including mm-hmm. a few kids. But we slowly, that slowly happened as we grew and expanded what we were doing. 
Yeah. And does everybody help with the seed uh, work or do just some people a little bit like a kibbutz? Are there sort of tasks that different people sign up for? I I think it's quite a bit like a a kibbutz. I mean, in a way, just like when I was on kibbutz, when you have a big job that needs a lot of people not very specialized, then you call on everyone. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, you know, some people specialize in building, and they only help in the winter when we're busily shipping orders in the seed business. About half of us, the seed business is what we do is our main thing. Mm-hmm. Some some people garden, but they really garden for our own uh, domestic consumption. Yeah. Now, the, the, that sort of is mixed up with the seed company because... All the seeds that we give them to grow are things that we want to look at. <laughs> they yeah. have to let other people take notes on the things that they're growing for us to eat. <laughs> and so Jeff makes this offer. You guys as a group take it on. Uh-huh. And at that point, how many varieties were you growing and offering in the catalog? And what does that look like now, Ira? Oh, I can't remember now. A, a, a couple hundred when mm-hmm. we took it on. There were lots of things in the seed bank that had not yet been offered, which was nice because that yeah. gave us a lot of material to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we offer online about 800 varieties. Wow. Uh, well, one of the things is we decided, being a co-op, that we really wanted to expand working with other farms. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have about 50 farms that we actively uh, work with every year. And they might only grow one variety because, you know, we specialize in family heirlooms and it might be their family's heirloom that they offer. But there are other, you know, farms that provide us with a dozen or even two dozen varieties. And we're you know, seed growing is a big part of the bottom line for that farm. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're speaking this week with Ira Wallace, plantswoman, seed saver, and author. Ira is part of the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, a network of over 50 seed growers. The Southern Exposure Seed Exchange offers more than 700 varieties of vegetable, flower, herb, grain, and cover crop seeds, and they specialize in family heirlooms and varieties that perform well in the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast. Ira is sharing with us about her life's work stewarding and teaching about seed saving and farming. Stay with us. We'll be right back after a break. It's Jennifer. Welcome to the second in our seed series this week with Ira Wallace, whose energy and advocacy are so inspiring to me. Did you hear her phrase, we specialize in family heirlooms? Let's unpack that a little bit, shall we? At first hearing, this phrase went right by me. Yeah, of course, heirloom seeds, they're a thing, great. But on second listen, the phrase made me pause and really think about it. When most people use the phrase family heirloom, they're referring to inorganic 
stuff. Furniture, art, jewelry, stuff. So to put the phrase on seeds passed down through families, this gets at something for me. It asks me to think again and reframe what I value. What I would take with me in the event of an evacuation from my home. What I will pass to my children when I leave this world. It also gets to our cultural legacies, carried in the lands we steward and support, in the gardens we keep, and the seeds that we hold dear, which are full of life and narratives held nowhere else. If your family has plant or seed heirlooms, what are they? How do we hold and carry these legacies for the future? Ira, Jerry, Kaylin, the Organic Seed Alliance, and all of the speakers in this series with me this month, they know how, and they're helping us to know. On a slightly different note, do you garden in the West? You may have heard me speak about Pacific Horticulture Society, a 501c3 society of people connecting to the power of gardens along the West Coast. They're going on 50-year-old publication known as Pacific Horticulture, as well as their programming across our region, has been invaluable to me for the past decade. As a member of the board of the Society for the past several years, I wanted to share with you a membership opportunity for this coming year's programs and publications. If you go to pacifichorticulture.org and then to the Join button and you use the code BOARDSPECIAL between now and September 20th, you'll get 20% off the normal membership cost and ensure that you get the printed fall issue of Pacific Horticulture in October. This is not a paid sponsorship, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, now back to our conversation with Ira Wallace, seed saver, seed steward, and author. Are all of your sort of member affiliate growers in the Southeast? Uh, no, they aren't. I would say 80% are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's some things that uh, can be grown here, and we try to offer only things that you could save seed if you were trying to, you know, be self-sufficient, which mm -hmm. someday, some years we try to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, for example, brassicas, the weather is much better suited in the Pacific Northwest to get high-quality brassica seeds of many varieties, mm -hmm. especially like broccoli and cauliflower. And so, you know, we have growers there. There are a few growers who are independent breeders who we just love, like Frank Morton at Wild Garden Seeds. You know, he just does such a great job, and his varieties do well. And you know how we got interested in, you know, well, partially because the Organic Seed Alliance is there, and in being involved with that organization, we, we run into the pro the product of seed breeders from the Pacific Northwest. Right, and some right. of them are just so tempting that we feel like, and they grow really well for us in mm. the Southeast. It's just that it's very hot and humid at the time that those particular seeds are maturing. So uh, if we were yeah. growing them here, uh, we'd have a third of the production unless we grew them undercover. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so... You currently have about 800 seeds 
available online. When you referred to the seed bank, do you have, where is the seed bank? And is there always sort of a rotating availability of what is kind of archived in the bank and what is available at any one time? Or is it pretty much everything you have is available even though it has backup in the seed bank? Well, it's a little bit of both of those. Mm -hmm. Some things uh, uh, we try to have available all the time, Uh, especially things that that we are the only ones who offer that we think are really special in one way or another for our region. Mm -hmm. And uh, (laughs) although, you know, we joke, we say we serve uh, Southerners and folks from the Mid-Atlantic and Southerners in exile. This is wannabe Southerners. They, <laughs> people who want their gumbo, even though they live in Washington State. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so we, we have, we offer, you know, those varieties, and we try to have them. But, you know, growing seeds... They're living things, and sometimes it doesn't work out, so they're not always available. Mm-hmm. And then we still have, you know, probably a thousand varieties that we think are of interest, and we slowly rotate those in. And sometimes they become all the time things, and sometimes they become once every ten year things. You you talk about some of the specialty items that you offer that are distinct to just southern exposure. Can you give us a couple examples of these or of some of the family heirloom individual seeds that carry particular, you know, poignance in their narrative for you, Ira? Well, some of the things that are like that are no longer just offered by us because other people get excited about them too. But, Mm -hmm. you know, like our signature tomato is Radiator Charlie's Mortgage Lifter. Mm -hmm. And it has a great story. Uh, M.C. Biles, known as Radiator Charlie, had a radiator uh, shop in uh, West Virginia, and it was at the bottom of a hill. And this was like in the 30s and 40s. And guess what happened when people got to the top of the hill? Their radiator would overheat, and they'd come right back down. And he had developed this huge tomato. Like, we're talking one and a half two-pound individual fruits. And he sold plants for a dollar each. And that was a long time ago. So he paid off his mortgage in six years with this. And when Jeff came along, he met someone who knew Mr. Bell's nephew. And they got introduced. And this tomato was offered by Southern Exposure, and people got excited. Jeff took some of those two found fruits to an interview he was doing on NPR, and my goodness, since then, we, every year we try to have Radiator Charlies. That's really yeah. fun. Uh, we have things that people don't usually think of growing, but that they can in their home garden, like peanuts. And one of the ones that we have is Schronce's Deep Black Peanut, and it's a, a black-coated skin peanuts and talk about something that looks so good when you take and put a little olive oil and put half red peanuts and half black ones and just toast them in a pan and serve mm. them at a party they're so 
sprightly looking and they are so tasty when it, with a little salt uh, that that's a good one. And and we we sort of like to think that you know these black skinned uh, peanuts that for uh, enslaved African people that it could remind them of black bombera from Africa because these black peanuts were mostly kept uh, in along the coast in the Carolinas and Georgia and places like that and a lot were grown by the maroon people who had sort of run away and were living on those barrier islands. Hmm. And is that something that people outside of a humid hot environment could try, I say, asking from Northern California where it's nice and hot but not particularly humid? Well, I, I think that you can because actually a lot of peanuts are grown like in Arizona, and I don't think mm-hmm. it's humid there. <laughs> okay. No, uh, it's not. Uh, well, now I have, a new, I have a new seed to try, Ira. I'm so excited. Um, any other stories you want to share before I move on? Well, yeah, I'll tell you about the. This is kind of a classic thing, and we have a, a Grandma Nellie's mushroom bean. It's a yellow mushroom bean, and this is one of these anonymous donations. It comes in a little envelope with you know, thirty seeds, and says. We used to always grow these. We got them from Grandma Nellie, but nobody is around who wants to in the younger generation. We thought maybe you'd keep them up. We think that when they're at the Shelley stage, that's when the bean is sort of enlarged in the pod, but the pod is still crisp and succulent, that if you cook them up, they remind you of mushrooms, and maybe you'll think they're worthwhile. Well, we grew some, and we agreed. And Grandma Nellie's has been there, but it didn't have a return address or nothing. Oh, wow. You you have to hope they know you, you grew them on and spread them out into the world, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what yeah. I think. Yeah, so. So when does the, does the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange put out a printed catalog each year, or is it just online? And if it does a print catalog, when should people be looking for that? We send out our print catalog so that it'll arrive in homes like the first week in December. But actually, we send the list to our printers for the first mailing in the last week in October. So if you want to get that first off-the-press printing of our catalog, you can sign up at southernexposure.com, and we will hold on to your name. And then miraculously in December, this catalog full of great hand-drawn illustrations and fun pictures uh, and more varieties than you have any room for will be there to tempt you on a cold winter's day. (laughs) I love it. I'm so signing up. And that brings me to a sort of fabulous coming together confluence of heritage and fun and narrative behind this and sharing all of these things that takes place at the Heritage Harvest Festival at Monticello. Tell listeners a little bit about how you came to be a co-founding organizer 
of this festival and and what it looks like currently? Well, I had been to a friend's wedding in California, and we had gone to Gary Ibsen's Tomato Fest. And it was like <laughs> blocks and blocks of all everything tomato and so forth. And uh, on the way home, I was uh, sitting in the plane talking to my friend about, you know, we could do something a little bit like this because it with all the tastings and people giving workshops and demonstrations, but we could do it at Monticello, which is so way cool of a place. And it's only 25 miles from where we live. And we thought about it and wrote up this proposal for a festival that would be co-hosted by Monticello's Center for Historic Plants and Southern Exposure. And I had just decided to be semi retired or something and uh so i was had joined the local master gardeners and were was trying to get them all excited about organic gardening and so i somehow talked the statewide master gardener organization into also uh being co-host this first year and, and what was that first year ira oh my gosh ah, we are now on our uh Twelfth festival, so okay, so eighteen, so two thousand and six. So this must have been like two thousand and four or five that you were putting the pr- presentation out there. Yes, so um, so I wrote this up and presented it to Peter Hatch, then director uh, of grounds and gardens, and Peggy Cornett, who was curator of plants, and we. It was basically. Let's do this at the Center for Historic Plants so we don't have to worry about getting into the day-to-day operations. That's where a lot of seed is produced for Monticello, and, uh, they, but they have beautiful gardens there, too. And I volunteered to raise enough money to pay any out-of-pocket expenses and to marshal the master gardeners to have enough volunteers that it wouldn't need a lot of staff. Well, they talked about it for a little bit and ran it up the flagpole. Uh, because it was compelling that we would be able to get well-known speakers from all over to come and, you know, lots of volunteer nonprofit organizations that are in the agricultural sphere uh, to come and exhibit, Um, and that we would have this fabulous tomato tasting as a part of the whole deal. And uh, so they agreed, and we thought we'd have, you know, a few hundred people, mm-hmm. and our first year, a thousand people showed up at the gate. <laughs> so it, it was an idea whose time had come in a place where people were looking for something to bring our community uh, of food people together. Yeah. And what kind of attendance did you have last year? We've had gone up to more like 6,000 people. It's the Mm -hmm. biggest single attendance day at Monticello. And it's now both on the main grounds and at the Center for Historic Plants or just on the main grounds? Well, it's both, but the main day is uh, up on the mountaintop 
we have, well, we have three days now. Thursday, we have off-site uh, events, which includes the Center for Historic Plants, which is down the road, you know, a mile from the main part of Monticello. Mm -hmm. uh, near our place is a forest green farms that we work with, and we're going to do a thing on garlic and perennial onions, all the strange alliums you never saw you'll get to see. And uh, Vintage Virginia Apples has a huge—I mean, they have a nice nursery at Monticello, but these people have more different apple varieties than you can shake a stick at. And uh, they're going to have apples and, and cheese and cider tasting and stuff uh, there. And then uh, we're, the Charlottesville Cooking School is going to have one of our speakers, Matt Rayford, uh, cook straight from the garden with a select group. And so that's our Thursday. It's the appetizer. Uh, and then on Friday, we'll have lovely classes and tours at Monticello. And then on Saturday, we'll set up the tents overnight, and there'll be the tasting, uh, tastings and chef's demos and uh, vendors with all the cool things to take home and lovely plants and interesting seeds. And... Uh, an array of workshops that will just, you know, make a garden lover or a foodie be very excited. <laughs> and the diversity of offerings and voices and backgrounds involved in the festival, at least last year, and I haven't looked at the, the, the slate of presenters for this year, just really made me happy. To, to see. It, it was a fantastic array. We, we've been trying this. It, it, sometimes people ask me, why do you work with Monticello? They're such a white organization. And mm -hmm. it's kind of true, but let me tell you something. They have been working on this project to be in contact with and take down the stories of Monticello from the descendants of enslaved people. And that has started to unfold in the programming over the years that I've been involved with Monticello. Mm -hmm. And Monticello has, you know, very much supported me bringing in an array of people of color, people uh, from different audiences uh, to be a part of this festival that mm -hmm. is on a place that was built by, uh, you know, black enslaved people uh, and it harries both the good and troubling uh, history, but it made something fabulous, and we're using that place to showcase something fabulous. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In this four-part series on seed people around the country, this week is our second installment, and we're speaking with Ira Wallace of the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, an author of Vegetable Gardening in the Southeast. In both capacities, Ira was inspired to help co-found and organize for the past 12 years the upcoming Harvest Heritage Festival taking place at Monticello in Charlottesville, Virginia, September 20th through the 22nd. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. 
It's Jennifer. I love stories held in seeds and plants, and the story of Radiator Charlie's mortgage lifter tomato is a great one. Ira's story of seeds dropped off with no name and no address, but a long family history with the seed is so poignantly bittersweet, isn't it? Did you happen to catch the reverse irony in which last week Jerry Gettle was inspired while he was on the East Coast to organize the National Heirloom Expo Festival he co-founded on the West Coast six years ago? Ira was inspired 13 years ago while on a visit to the West Coast to co-found the Heritage Harvest Festival on the East Coast. There's something funny, bi-coastal, and the universe knocking, wind-borne cross-pollination at play in stories like these. For seed growers who are concerned about the state of our seed, our seed safety, and seed sovereignty, I wanted to read to you the Safe Seed Pledge that many seed growers take as an oath of sorts as to their own standards. As home gardeners, I feel like being clear on our own standards and holding to them is equally important, whatever we determine them to be. Consider your own version of a safe garden pledge for your seeds, your plants, your soil supplements, the wildlife you welcome, and the wildlife you decide to live with before abandoning your pledge. Here it is, the Safe Seed Pledge. Agriculture and seeds provide the basis on which our lives depend. We must protect this foundation as a safe and genetically stable source for future generations. For the benefit of all farmers, gardeners, and consumers who want an alternative, we pledge that we will not knowingly buy or sell genetically engineered seeds or plants. The mechanical transfer of genetic material outside of natural reproductive methods and between genera, families, or kingdoms poses great biological risks as well as economic, political, and cultural threats. We feel that genetically engineered varieties have been insufficiently tested prior to public release. More research and testing is necessary to further assess the potential risks of genetically engineered seeds. Further, we wish to support agricultural progress that leads to healthier soils, genetically diverse agricultural ecosystems, and ultimately, people and communities. End of the pledge. I know there are a lot of different opinions out there about genetic modification of our plants and our seeds. But to me, this Safe Seed Pledge is a compelling statement as to some of the concerns that people have about the use of GMOs. And I thought you might be interested in hearing it. Okay, now back to our seed stories with Ira Wallace. Tell me the dates for the, the festival this year and who are some of the speakers you're most excited about, Ira? Oh, well, <laughs> the dates uh, this year, the main festival dates are the 21st and 22nd of September. That's Friday and Saturday. And as I say, mm -hmm. and on uh, the 20th, there are just the four off-site uh, events, although you could come and 
have a day at Monticello before everybody and their sister-in-law is there. Uh, but uh, mm -hmm. on the festival, well, there's so many things that are fun. On the main day, uh, the ticket is all-inclusive, so you can go to whatever workshops you can find enough time to go to. People that I am excited about is Samin Nasri Rat is coming, and, you know, you're going to get, like, such great flavor mixing in, in, the, in, 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 in her cooking. is going to be really cool. And Michael Twitty, who I love... And he is going to uh, be on a panel with Tony uh, Tipton Martin, and they're talking about Edna Lewis, who grew up just down the road from Monticello. And I always thought, boy, you know, when I'm reading, you know, her books and she's talking about the seasons, I can just see it out my window. And so that's going to be great. And, and Michael Twitty, you know, he has such a great presence of saying, well, you know, for African-American people, all the history isn't necessarily written down in the books, but that food history lives on. And you can extrapolate mm -hmm. back between historic re records and what people are doing now. And uh, so I kind of like to hear him when he's in these uh, discussions to see, you know, how Kevin West, who's kind of more of a historian dude, how they come together and and talk about it. And then Michael's going to be cooking on Mulberry Row uh, over an open fire later in the afternoon. And he's so good at that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Craig Lahouye, the North Carolina tomato man, is who wrote Epic Tomatoes, and he's going to talk about some of those, and he always brings some of the interesting uh, varieties that he's working on. And he he's so funny. He grows his tomatoes mostly in five-gallon buckets on his driveway because he didn't have enough sun anywhere else. And he's you know brought so many varieties out of the USDA uh, gene black bank, and presented them to the world, including Cherokee Purple. Wow. That sounds so great. And I, um, yeah, really fun. Really uh, just such a wide range of offerings for anybody, whether you're a gardener or a cook or just like to eat good food. When, uh, when are tickets on sale? Do you need to buy them in advance? What what should people know about actually if they if they are thinking of coming? Uh, what do they need to know? Well, tickets are available online now. You can get it at heritageharvestfestival.com, or if you go to the Monticello website or the Southern Exposure website, you can click over to them if you're more comfortable. Uh, you can. It it's nice. The Friday and Thursday events have paid tickets, and sometimes they sell out because they're in smaller spaces. So uh, if you have something you really want to do, I suggest get your ticket ahead. Uh, if you purchase your ticket online, you get a couple of dollars off, too, so you can, uh, you know, get everything. Go to heritageheartfestival.com, sign up for the workshops you want to. The Saturday during the day ones are, uh, you know, 
whoever who comes first. But they're big tents where a hundred people can come for, you know, a talk, and there, mm-hmm. you know, dozens of things happening. So you can find something really fun and interesting uh, to do, and you can read about all the great chefs and gardeners who are going to be there. You know, and the location. I mean, if you, if you haven't been to Monticello lately, there's been a lot of additional, you know, restorations and parts mm-hmm. of the property that you may not have seen before. And there's going to be fun things in the historic kitchen all day Saturday. Mm-hmm. So fun. And, of course, the Center for Historic Plants, if you've never been there, make the effort. Get there if you go for the festival or before or after. Yeah, and on those Thursday uh, workshops, too, there's interesting local lunches being offered at each location, too. So you don't have to go running out to find food. You can come and spend your three hours and take a little break in the middle and have lovely lunch like at my uh, first green allium fun we're gonna have a um, wood-fired oven and make um, fresh pizzas for you using garden fresh ingredients and Mm. some of these lovely garlic things it's gonna be so nice so nice and alliums are one of the things that Acorn Community Farm is known for, am I right? Yes, we do. Yeah. We, we offer things like yellow potato onions, if you have not ever had them. They're like uh, shallots, but a little bit bigger, not, not huge or anything, uh, and more full-flavored. They, mm. they used to say, if you plant some potato onions, you will always have onions, either green onions in the winter or... Uh, you know, bulb onions when you have gotten your crop to grow up and dried them. And the you s- plant some and save some to have uh, in your cooking. When you think about the festival and you think about the work at Acorn Community Farm and not only the work you do preserving and sharing seed with a much larger group of people, but... The, the community as a model. What are what are your greatest hopes for work like this in terms of its impact in the bigger world, Ira? For us, we think that having uh, self-sufficiency in local communities is important. And we think, especially in these times of erratic climate, Uh, that having the genetic diversity of uh, our food crops be preserved is is very important. And uh, our interest in heirlooms is also, in addition to sort of the taste and agronomic qualities, there's the stories that go along with these varieties that take you back to a time and a place and helps build community uh, with those people who came before you and uh, treasured these varieties. And, I, you know, why it was so fun to team up with Monticello, and especially at a time when they were open to reintegrating 
the black people who built Monticello into that story is mm-hmm. it it heirlooms allow you to carry the story of the past into the future and rather than just throwing away everything and then having to dig around when you run into troubles with what you thought was what's needed and you find out, you know, there's a nutritional need or, you know, a disease resistance that uh, is only in these older varieties that might not be quite as uh, productive, but, you know, like have a more nutrient density or something like that. Mm-hmm. And we really uh, think that a good story helps people to remember how important uh, a variety was to someone at, in the past. Is there anything else you would like to add about your work? I I love gardening year-round. And uh, while at the festival, I'm going to be talking about fall and winter gardening. But uh, if people like to join us online at southernexposure.com. We, we try to share um, how, to, how to have something fresh from the garden every single week of the year. I did this when I lived in Canada for a short while, so I reckon most places in the U.S., if you have a coal frame, you can pull it off. <laughs> yeah. And you are the author of the Timber Press Guide to Gardening in the Southeast, where I am guessing we can find quite a bit of good information about some of the varieties you love and do well there and might translate well to other areas of the the gardening world, yes? It is so true. And, uh, you know, you were saying about translating. I have customers who tell me, you know, how much that they learn just about the rhythm of, uh, mm. you know, planting small amounts all the time, about relay planting, and uh, just about which varieties are more coal-hardy and which are not, that help them in places you would not expect, <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. especially the Pacific Northwest, shall we say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. And will there be copies of your book signed by you available at the festival, Ira? Absolutely. I'm going to be there. You can get me to sign it while we're talking and personalize it to you. Or, you know, you will. And if you miss the festival, you can go and get one and I'll sign it for you and send it in the mail from Southern Exposure. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, it's so good to speak with you, and I hope that some people will come and visit us at Monticello September 22nd. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun and delicious. Oh, yeah. Ira Wallace serves on the board of the Organic Seed Alliance, on the Virginia Association for Biological Farming and the Open Source Seed Initiative. She is a farmer owner of the cooperatively managed Southern Exposure Seed Exchange, where she coordinates variety selection and new seed grower contracts. Southern Exposure, which supports sustainable home and market gardening, 
offers over 700 varieties of open-pollinated heirloom and organic seeds selected for flavor and regional adaptability. Ira is a member and resident of Acorn Community, which is the home farm for Southern Exposure Seed Exchange on over 60 acres of certified organic land in central Virginia. 13 years ago, she helped to found and continues to be an organizer of the Heritage Harvest Festival at Monticello, an old-time seed swap and festival showcasing local food, hands-on workshops, and more. Ira's work is regularly featured by the Virginia Association of Biological Farmers, the Virginia Master Gardeners, the Carolina Farm Stewardship Association, Mother Earth News, and Southern Sustainable Agriculture Working Group. She is the author of the Timber Press Guide to Gardening in the Southeast. Join us again next week as the conversations focusing on the seeds of September continue next week when we're joined by Rowan White, founder of Sierra Seeds in interior Northern California and member of the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast so you never miss a conversation, as well as to read more about and see many photos from Ira Wallace's and the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange work and farm, head over to cultivatingplace.com. That's cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.